Welcome to Art of the Word, the Living Stones podcast, where we seek to discover the beauty of faith through the beauty of art. In this episode, Valentina Camarotta from Living Stones, Rome, meets up with Father Christian Sanz, director of the Agrupación Católica Universitaria, to begin the discussion on the church history of Christianity, from its beginning to the age of Constantine the Great in the 4th century. Hello everyone, I am Valentina, I'm part of the group Livingstone's Rome, and I'm happy to be here with Father Christian Sainz for this episode on the history of the early church. Father Christian is a Jesuit from Miami, Florida, where he is lecturer of church history at Regional Major Seminary St. Vincent de Paul. Hello, Father Christian. Hello, Valentina. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to be back again with Livingstone's uh, it's been a couple of years, I believe. The last time we saw each other was in Venice in 2018. Yes, it was the International Formation Meeting in Venice where we focused on what is church. Father Christian, what are the main points we should take into account to understand the early church? Who were the early Christians? It's interesting that you say early Christians because uh, throughout the history of the church, really, especially the beginning of the history of the church, uh, Christianity or the Christians weren't one single unified uh, group. There were actually several different types of Christians. Still today in our modern history, we have divisions of different types of Christians as well. And so in the formation of the early church, we have to begin with seeing, well, who made up the early church. And we really begin with two groups, two distinct groups. There were the Jewish Christians, there were Jews, uh, devout Jews, who might have met Jesus or have known the apostles, uh, were probably disciples of Jesus himself, uh, and continued to be Jews as well, uh, faithful and devout Jews. And a group of Gentile Christians, which really begin to appear by the time of St. Paul and his mission to the Gentiles. Gentile Christians did not have a Jewish background, and they were sometimes either ignorant of Jewish traditions and customs, or might have been familiar with some of them. However, they themselves did not identify as Jewish. And these two groups grew together in Jerusalem and in the areas around Jerusalem and Israel, and especially in the diaspora in those Jewish communities spread throughout the Greek and Roman world. These first two groups, and we can find them in the the Acts of the Apostles, sometimes came into conflict with each other in as far as how to live their life and in questions of discipline and tradition and observance. Jewish Christians continue to follow Jewish customs and Mosaic law. However, they saw that other Christians who identified and followed Christ and were perhaps very influenced by St. Paul, weren't so bound to those Jewish traditions. Again, usually out of ignorance or, well, non-identification with Jewish uh, backgrounds. And so there was these two parallel communities that existed, sometimes in the same city, and they would gather to uh, uh, apart to celebrate the feasts apart, and sometimes they would come together. Uh, however, they seem to be a little bit divided because of those cultural divides. And so, unfortunately, we see at the beginning, there's, there's a division amongst Christians on who are the con- uh, considered Christians. 
unto the Jewish authorities. They already saw that there were certain Jews that seemed to be following a different path. They didn't quite call it Christian yet. And remember, it was uh, perhaps first in what is today Syria, where Christians received the name Christian for the first time. And then, of course, amongst the pagans or those non-Jews, uh, the Gentiles, there was a group that was also identifying and, 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 and staying together with this Jewish rabbi, which was known as Jesus, and following his teachings and his followers. And so these two groups continued to grow side by side. However, when, within the first century and a half, at least within the first 150 years, we start seeing that the Gentile Christians, those Christians of pagan origin, started to outnumber the Jewish Christians. And as Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians mixed and married together more and more, Christianity had more of that Gentile uh, background and started to separate or distance itself from its uh, Jewish uh, background, which was still existing at that time. Uh, This led perhaps to some of the first unifying factors amongst Christians, unifying factors that brought in certain traditions that were to be observed. Perhaps one of them was the calendar. And so and uh, when to mark the Passover, because this was very important to mark also the Feast of Easter and the Passion of Christ, which was tied to the Passover feast in the Jewish calendar. Unifying factors amongst Christians also in teaching and understanding that was going on at this time. We were talking about a moment when there was a Platonic revival in uh, throughout the, uh, the late antique world. And so uh, a Platonic revival that brought in uh, Plato and those Platonist school of uh, philosophy that was understood and applied in the Jewish setting and also adopted by these early Christians as well, trying to understand more their faith and the world through the Platonic lens. We spoke about the unifying factors among Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Probably there were also some divisions. Do we know some examples of divisions? A good example of uh, these divisions for uh, would be one that uh, it would be the observance of certain feast days. Uh, and so the, the feast days, kind of what today we call patronal feast days or, uh, uh, or saints days in some places, are community events. And we see it in the letters of St. Paul. A question comes to him, especially from the Gentile Christians, whether it's allowed or not to partake in eating the meat that's sacrificed to the, uh, to the gods in these feasts, even though they don't believe in the gods. On the one hand, you had this uh, wanting to become or continue to be part of the community, even though it would be a pagan community. And on the other hand, you have this already division or this uh, this rejection of certain forms of communal living. And so uh, devout Jew- uh, Jews did not partake in the meat that was sacrificed uh, to the gods. Now, on the one hand, St. Paul says, well, if, as long as you do not do it in honor of the gods, it, it's fine to go ahead and, 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 and participate in the feast days, while some of the, the more stricter Jewish Christians said, absolutely not, and it would be a cause for division or expulsion from the community. And so participation even inside the, uh, the, the local community uh, could be a source of division. A later division was also in the way to observe some of the fasts and some of the feasts. And so whether it be uh, a, a week fast or sometimes the longer 40 days fast would becomes Lent, uh, that 
some Christians were proposing was lessened in other circles and Gentile circles to just one week or uh, several days. Um, the question, for example, of uh, whether the Sabbath be the uh, the the day of uh, of the Lord and of uh, of uh, celebrating uh, the, uh, the the Pasqua, the Resurrection, uh, it comes into question, or whether it be well Dies Dominici, which becomes later the Sunday, and so these also become questions: how to observe the Sabbath still, or should the Sabbath be observed uh, Friday as well? How's Friday to be observed between the two groups? Because again, we have two different traditions being uh, being pressed at the same time. Uh, perhaps the greatest division amongst those early Christians also was an understanding what uh, composes sacred scripture. Even amongst Jewish uh, uh, circles at this time, there was a composition and, and kind of the conglomeration of the Old Testament as we know it today. And so that Septuagint Bible was also being formed within this uh, these uh, first 200 years of the uh, of the history of the church. And so certain Jewish Christians would not uh, uh, did not acknowledge certain of the books that were acknowledged in other places where Christians were uh, gathered. Some Gentile Christians included non-canonical writings as part of sacred scripture, whether it be letters or other writings that would be associated uh, with some of the prophets or, uh, 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 or recognizing some communities as well but not recognized in, in, in others. And so even what constitutes sacred scripture was uh, something that brought division amongst uh, some of the early Christians. On the one hand, some early Christian uh, uh, followers said that, well, only the New Testament should be allowed and nothing of the Old Testament because there are new people. This tended to follow along Gentile Christian lines. Jewish Christians, however, wanted to conserve the Old Testament, the Torah, and everything that is related to it. And so, again, you had some communities that did not look at the Old Testament or were ignorant of it, and others that were uh, very uh, uh, knowledgeable of the Old Testament. What brought the unification, though, despite some of these divisions, was uh, an agreement and it takes some time. It took some uh, almost over a century to ri- arrive to this agreement to uh, come to more a common understanding of New and Old Testament, that these two were not opposed to each other, but rather complemented each other and have to be seen together as well. Uh, as far as some of the customs and traditions that now were distant from uh, the majority Gentile Christians, sometimes they either became optional or just uh, uh, already faded away with the time as well. And so the question of the circumcision, the question of dietary laws as well, and the observance of uh, or the distancing from civil feast days was no longer a question anymore. Perhaps what unified Christians among the most was the question of uh, what we call today Holy Week, the High Holy Days, because they still coincided with the High Holy Days of the Jewish uh, religion. And so on agreeing with uh, a common date for Easter and and agreeing with uh, a way of observing the Lenten and the preparatory time before Easter, this different communities were able to identify with each other. Now, there were still communities that did not agree. And so the length of the fast was different or the degree of the fast was different in some places, such as uh, in the Greek areas of what is Asia Minor. It would be a little bit different from the, the practice in Jerusalem, perhaps, and was different from the practice in Rome at the same time. However, more and more common points were being found 
in the dates and the, the, the day of the celebration itself of the Pasch uh, or of Easter Sunday, which is the highest feast day in the Christian calendar. And there were also some theological differences. For example, on the figure of Christ, on who is Christ? Indeed, there, there was uh, an, uh, misunderstandings at the beginning uh, with the, uh, the figure of Christ. It, it kind of think about the parable that talks about the spreading the seed over the different ground, that there's the fertile ground and there's a the rocky ground and there's a the sandy ground. And it takes root in one and it does not take root so well in the others. Mm-hmm. And so within this mix at the same time, uh, the mixture or the Gentile, some of the Gentile Christians brought still with them a lot of their pagan ideas. And so you get this, this uh, syncretism between pagan uh, notions and pagan worship and Christianity, which gives birth to the Gnostic Uh, movements or even Gnostic religions. Some of them were very hard to distinguish from mainstream Christianity because at least they spoke of the same Christ, gave the same attributes to Christ. However, they seemed to lean more towards the god Apollo or some of the other Eastern deities uh, such as Mithras and uh, other cults as well. And so there was this mixture in there that, that, that did also cause a theological division over what exactly did the resurrection mean, what exactly was the incarnation. And because of these misunderstandings, maybe in one community they said Christ was only divine, but there was nothing human. And in the other community they were saying the opposite, that he's only human and nothing divine. The church was now forced to understand deeply who Christ is. And so we get the beginnings of what is a theology or a Christology at this time. It's not very well defined yet. It's almost the church is thinking out loud at this moment. Also in the organization of what the church is, is also a question of, uh, of what we would call today ecclesiology. Uh, was the church only an individual community, whether it be in Asia Minor or in Jerusalem or in Rome? Or was there something that unified the churches despite language and despite culture still unified them in distance? And this is something that's interesting we see with the writings of what would be the early bishops, and we call these the apostolic church fathers. Uh, so a certain St. Ignatius of Antioch, for example, his letters and the questions that are sent to him by the leaders of the other Christian communities, we realize that they all had the same questions regarding Christ. They had the same questions regarding how to organize the church, and sometimes the same problems with people who taught differently. And one of those major problems I, we mentioned earlier was those who said that the Old Testament and sacred scripture of the Jews had no relevance, only the Gospels was, was should be uh, studied. And what to do with these people that, that claim that? And so these had the common problems and common solutions that were applied, begin to create a unity uh, of a church that spread out uh, throughout the empire. And what happened to the Jewish Christians? It seems they disappeared somehow. Yes, yes. Uh, with uh, numbers, it, it started to uh, to dwindle in as much as the, the Gentile Christian outnumbered the uh, Jewish Christians, uh, and it grew. Uh, the mission to the Gentiles perhaps was more successful. Uh, many Jewish Christians at the end either married or blended into the Gentile Christian community. But yes, in effect, it disappeared. 
uh, to the uh, and uh, really the the notion that we have when we look at uh, the ancient church and perhaps the image that we have is mostly of the Gentile Christian uh, church, which became the majority. Uh, this becomes the case, especially in uh, already the uh, towards the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century uh, uh, after uh, uh, A.D. Because the uh, bishops, what become bishops, episcopos, presbyters, and leaders of the Christian communities no longer have Jewish heritage. They were all Gentile origin. Uh, we could say those were the new converts. And so because they did not have that Jewish heritage, then even more distant what is going to be that community from a Jewish background. And so eventually there comes a moment when all the the, the leaders of almost all the communities have no more Jewish uh, background or very distant Jewish background that doesn't influence the community anymore. How has been the persecution? It has been somehow uniform in different regions of the empire and in different times or not? Very much so different in, uh, in the different regions of the empire and also in the different times. And so we really can talk about the persecutions, plural, because uh, there were several, and the degree of persecution changes as well. Uh, perhaps one of the earliest persecutions, and and uh, we can understand in the sense of misunderstanding or antagonism by uh, the Roman Empire, the government, and even society in general, happens uh, already in the second century. Uh, there are rumors about these Christians uh, there are allegations even about these Christians. Some will even go back to the first century and talk about Nero as well. Uh, but we already have the, uh, the, this, uh, uh, certain distrust and, uh, mystery, uh, with the mainstream, uh, uh culture. So the, the, the Roman culture and, uh, questions or rumors come around Christians that these Christians, uh, sacrifice human flesh and human blood. Uh, there are questions about morality, even amongst the Christians. There were allegations that they also sacrificed children. There were questions also about uh, who would be allowed or what were the rituals of initiation. Most of them were, uh, they were misunderstandings and rumors and hearsay uh, that floated about. And so this misunderstanding and these, uh, and these rumors about Christians eventually reached the highest authorities, uh, uh, the Roman emperor. Perhaps we can see what was the vision or the, un- the misunderstanding of Christianity uh, with Justin Martyr. And he is considered the first apologist who writes the first, uh, we could say, writings in defense of Christianity. And what is he defending Christianity from? Well, the misconception that has made it all the way to the emperors, to the highest authorities. And so the first, perhaps, great misconception was, at least in the eyes of the Roman authorities, was that Christians were atheists, that they did not believe in the gods, and they did not believe in the divinities as the Romans knew it. As far as they knew it, at least the rumor that had received to them is they disparaged their patrimony, their past, they disparage their their own uh, their own culture and well that religious understanding of their culture and so they said they had no religion whatever they believed in was not what our fathers believed in and so for the Roman eyes they had no faith and so what Justin Martyr wants to do is before that 
that allegation is present. No, how Christianity does have a faith and it acknowledges one God or it corrects the errors of the faith the, the the faith of the uh, of the fathers of paganism and 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 their cultural uh, uh, patrimony, and so we have to look at Justin Martyr in that light. It's an explanation to a higher authority, to the to the Roman authority, to justify Christianity as a real faith that believes in a real God, not a conglomeration of accusations and and uh, misunderstandings. And so that's where Justin Martyr takes his point from. And we can see that those first persecutions were based on that misunderstanding and distrust. Christians should not be allowed in certain uh, positions, especially government positions, because we can't trust them. We don't know what they believe in. And so here Justin Martyr is explaining exactly what Christians believe in, uh, characterizing and addressing each of the uh, uh, the questions. For example, he'll talk about witchcraft and how Christianity does not practice witchcraft. Well, that serves to let us know that they were being accused of being which uh, of being witches and exercising witchcraft, which was illegal also in the Roman Empire uh, in certain areas. Now, this was different among uh, uh, in different regions. Uh, in, in Rome, for example, we can imagine that there was a discrimination for uh, Christians in certain imperial uh, posts and uh, and jobs. In other areas, it was probably not so pronounced and even not experimented at all. Um, But we also see in Northern Africa, it does take on a special role as well. Christians and the the different practices that existed in North Africa tended to be more rigorous and strict as the fasting was longer. The moral requirements of Christianity were also stricter. And so pagans in there would see these very strict and very austere uh, groups and not understand why they were so strict. And so that discrimination, that misunderstanding was based on that, uh, on that following. In other places, again, it would be different, perhaps more in the, uh, in the area of Asia, Asia Minor. They, they would see that, well, they're not following the feast days, or perhaps they did not uh, acknowledge the gods as we do. And again, they consider that atheism or a separation. And so we start with that misunderstanding of Christianity for the persecutions. I took some time these days to read Justin Martyr, some parts of the Apologia, that is one of the readings you suggested. And I was particularly touched by a sentence where he describes Christ using the God Asclepius. In this sentence, he uses Asclepius to explain the emperor who is Christ. Is it possible that Justin thinks that the fact that the emperor does not understand the Christians is a matter of language? Yes, and, and here we can see again that uh, that influence from Gentile Christianity being put in. How do you explain to the pagan or to the Roman, you know, what do we mean by Christ who heals? What is he healing from? So he uses the image of the healer as as uh, by excellence in in Roman uh, in Roman tradition in there, and so. What sometimes happens is there would be a misreading saying, oh, then Asclepius is Christ. No, no, he's using by analogy in here. And really what we start seeing is the the basis of uh, a lot of the explanation of the faith by basis of analogy. Now, sometimes the analogy gets lost and perhaps 
uh, and some do not understand or can quite grasp the uh, the depth of analogy. And instead of using an analogy, they say, well, it's equal to. And that causes misunderstandings and eventually some Gnostic uh, uh, religions follow off of misunderstanding of analogy. But uh, it's important to see that Justin is using the language of the emperor, or we can say the, the, the religious understanding of the emperor in order to explain and justify, more importantly, this faith uh, uh, before him. In the fourth century, there has been the persecution as we know it. So from Christianity misunderstood to the actual persecution. What happened? And in fact, what was the aim of the persecution? Yes, the persecutions as we know it represent a program by the government to repress and perhaps eliminate Christianity inside it. And they were different uh, degrees at different moments. The first persecutions were really a sense to disenfranchise Christians in certain areas. Uh, And so what we do find out is that the Christian community had grown, had become influential in certain parts of the Roman Empire, and perhaps was already entering into the heights of the local governments and even of the economy of that time. And so some of the first persecutions weren't necessarily what we think of as, well, the Christians being fed to the lions in the arena. No, Uh, they were mainly expropriations. And so the, uh, the seizure of land and buildings of churches and churches at this time were mainly other houses were, were in the area of houses. Some of them were their own temples already, as we would uh, understand a church to be today. And so the uh, government would seize these uh, properties and destroy them. Uh, the cemeteries, they would seize them. Uh, and any of the income that those properties could generate now were expropriated by the government. And so that was the first level of persecution, uh, general persecution, kind of to quell or have the Christians at least follow in, uh, in deed or in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 we could say by mouth a certain way, the, uh, the, uh, the Roman customs. Uh, one of the early, uh, perhaps greatest problems was taxes. And so there was, uh, the, a classic example of, uh, of a, a reason why the Romans uh, took a, a program or created an aggressive program against the Christians was uh, the burning of incense to the image of the emperor. Uh, burning of incense to the image of the emperor not only represented an act of loyalty and of patriotism uh, of, uh, of a citizen uh, in the Roman Empire, it was also the way you paid a tax. And so you had to buy the specific or the official incense from the official seller who would give you a receipt and it would be your proof that you paid the tax. And then, well, what you did with the incense was your problem. Uh, Whether you burned it to the emperor or not, really it didn't matter. What matters is that you had the receipt that showed that you paid already and you completed that duty, that uh, what they also called a liturgia, a liturgy, that you had completed your service in there. And so there was a question of whether the Christians should uh, do this or not. On the one hand, well, following the first commandment, there can be no other God. And so the uh, uh, many Christians would not uh, uh, burn the incense to, uh, uh, to the emperor. But by not doing so, they didn't pay their tax either. And so this became part of the program, was the government said you must pay the tax 
again, whether you burn the incense or not, that's, that's another question, but you must be seen at least to pay this tax. And so it, some Christians were obstinate and refused to, and that led to more confiscations and jailing until the tax was paid or the liturgy was performed to show that you paid your tax. Some of the Christians as well thought it was fine to pay the tax but not burn the incense, at least to avoid the problem. But others saw that that was also capitulating or recognizing uh, uh, another god. And others, what they call the traditores at the end, were the ones who go, went ahead and, 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 and complied anyway for fear of repercussion. Later on, this persecution would also extend to property, different types of property of the church, the sacred books, the sacred vessels. This shows us that there was already a developed church at the time and developed churches and chapels as well. And so the fact that the government would go strictly for the sacred objects as, an, as, a, as, a, as a means of expropriation shows us of a more established church at the time. Ultimately, and the highest form of persecution was, well, the killing of the Christians. And this was perhaps the last phase and what was burned into the memory of, uh, of the church. We see this happening towards the end of the third century and the beginning of the fourth century, which was known as the Great Persecution. And this Great Persecution is the one that's memorialized in the histories of Eusebius, of Lactantius. A lot of the early church historians uh, describe that Great Persecution. That's the one that we conserve in art as well, in our popular imagination and memory. It's the Christians being sent to the arena, the, um, the killing and the burning of the Christians in public, and of course, the expropriation and destruction of the churches as well. Part of the reason why we don't have much art from this, uh, uh, this early uh, moment of Christianity, because a lot of it was destroyed or lost. And so uh, this becomes kind of this great persecution, which is alluded to already in the, uh, in the book of Revelations and even in the book of Daniel, this time of tribulation. Certainly the Christians of the moment saw that perhaps the parousia, the coming of Christ, was imminent because they were enduring this moment of tribulation throughout all the churches, particularly in North Africa and particularly in what is Asia Minor, Minor or Turkey today. And what about the places where the Christians were gathering at this time? You spoke about sacred objects and properties. The Christians were gathering only in private houses or also in some other kind of buildings. Yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, we, we have mostly the image of the Domus uh, Ecclesia, the, the house churches, which were certainly the case in the city of Rome uh, and in some of the other major cities. However, there were also already at this time the existence of churches as we know them today, as temples uh, already. Uh, perhaps one of the biggest ones was in Nicomedia, and uh, Eusebius does uh, uh, describe the destruction of this church of uh, Nicomedia. Uh, it tells us that it, everyone was expelled from the building. The building was burned and torn down to the ground, and all its treasures were taken out and expropriated. This lets us know, one, that there was a dedicated church building already. And second, it was public. Everybody knew that this is where the Christians met. Everybody knew that this is where the Christians worshipped. And it had its own treasury. It had its own objects and property as well. And so in Asia Minor, it seems that there was already churches as we know them. 
In fact, if you go further east uh, towards uh, uh, what would have been the Mesopotamia at this time, we have the oldest extent uh, uh, example of a church, uh, of a dedicated building that was a Christian church in a place called Dura Europos, which is basically on the border really with Persian or or with what was the limits of um, of Roman influence in, uh, in, in the Far East. And so that area shows us that there was already good construction of Christian buildings. Uh, there's a beautiful example of a baptistry, uh, perhaps of a place of catechesis already uh, that was used for uh, Christians. And it was alongside just a few uh, meters away, not too far away, would be the uh, Jewish synagogue. And the show it showed that these communities were very still very close together, especially in the dispersion. When you get closer uh, to the centers of imperial power, then perhaps not so much. Uh, in the city of Rome already, there were several house churches uh, that uh, that existed at the time, and uh, also in other parts of southern Italy as well. Uh, yet we know in northern Africa, there was already existence of churches, uh, uh, separate church buildings as well, uh, that are also destroyed or uh, expropriated. So the development was different uh, throughout the, the empire. And what about the martyrs? Who were the martyrs? The idea of the martyr also is, is, uh, could be a point of contention in the early church. And so the martyr by excellence is the one who gave witness with his life for the gospel. And, uh, and many times, again, the, these martyrs were those who went, uh, well, to a great extreme. Some, with the Roman authorities, they were seen as rebels many times. Why? Well, these were the ones who refused to pay the tax or refused to do any act of obedience or unity with the Roman government. And so, of course, they were jailed and they preferred death over uh, over uh, uh, ceding to that Roman authority. We know from the writings of uh, Cyprian, for example, a number of Christians did fold and, and did break down under that uh, the stress of uh, of uh, jail or uh, of persecution. There were those Christians that brought before the magistrate and asked to make an oath in allegiance or make a, a symbol of allegiance to the emperor, did it, uh, despite what other Christians uh, were doing. And they were allowed to live and continue their lives. And so you had these gr- growing number of Christians who did uh, break under the persecutions. However, you can see the heroes of the time were the ones who stood firm and did not uh, change. Now, that, that, that wasn't all the Christians. Uh, we see already with Cyprian and even uh, later on with some of the bishops of Rome uh, later on, such as Cornelius, the question is what to do with the growing number of community Christians that had uh, acceded or had fallen in the, uh, in the uh, persecutions and well, made the sacrifice to the emperor to save their lives or made the oath of allegiance in order to save their property. Well, what to do with them? They were asking to be still part of the community. And so the uh, whole concept of reconciliation, of penance, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, what we call well, confession today starts to uh, arise at this moment because of those uh, persecutions. But certainly some of the martyrs not only serve to be uh, uh, witnesses or examples of Christians, but also fed or became the heroes of an anti-Roman movement, especially in North Africa, of uh, separation or rejection of uh, Roman authority in those areas.
joining us for this episode of Art of the Word, the Living Stones podcast, where we seek to discover the beauty of faith through the beauty of art. Keep well and stay tuned.